The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. I'm with my conversation partner, John McWhorter, every other week here at The Glenn Show. And this week, we are joined by Daniel Besner, who is Associate Professor at the Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and Tyler Harper, who's Assistant Professor at Bates College, who is a literary scholar working in environmental studies and uh, the history of science. So welcome, Tyler. Welcome, Daniel. And good to be with you, John. Good to see you. As always, yes. I wish I were not in Los Angeles as opposed to the comfort of my home, but good to see all of you. John teaches at Columbia University and he writes for the New York Times. I teach at Brown University and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show. We're all academics, uh, all four of us uh, on college campuses, John at Columbia, me at Brown, Tyler at Bates, and Danny at the University of Washington in Seattle, right? Yep, in beautiful Seattle. We are speaking here in uh, just before Thanksgiving. Uh, the war in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza, Hamas, has been going on since uh, October 7th, infamously so. And it has had repercussions uh, on our respective campuses and more broadly in the uh, university uh, world as uh, people with very strong feelings about the conflict engage with one another and uh, try to articulate their views. Um, the reason we're having this conversation, I, if I recall correctly, is that you guys, Danny and uh, Tyler, suggested that it might be good to talk uh, about the, the issue. Um, and I want to give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about what you're concerned about there. Uh, but let me just mention before we do that Danny has a podcast. He, he's, he's a big uh, social media guy, and he should uh, tell us what that is before we get started on the conversation. Sure. I think that's the biggest uh, insult I've ever received to be a big social media guy. So thank you. <laughs> uh, the podcast is called uh, American Prestige. It is a um, heterodox foreign policy podcast. So basically, the mainstream is going to say what the mainstream says about U.S. foreign policy. It assumes that the United States could rule the world, has both the right and duty to do so. Our podcast supposes, what if it does not? Um, and so if you're interested in an in, in actually heterodox perspective on foreign affairs that you're really not going to find on any mainstream outlet, you should check us out. American Prestige. Thank you. That's a good commercial. That was good. That was That's good. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, Tyler, why don't you start telling us what uh, what's going on in your mind in terms of uh, this issue of how we're talking about the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict in the wake of the war? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really, um, as a long time left person who's been, um, you know, cognizant of and, uh, you know, supportive of the Palestinian cause in various ways. It's been really eye-opening to me on two fronts. Um, one, I think... Um, some of the vitriol uh, and some of the uh, true callousness, I think, to the terrorist attacks of October 7th have been really surprising to me. I was not prepared for that, um, and it, it was eye-opening in certain ways, but also the uh, backlash in terms of 
free speech and the sort of uh, metastasizing, uh, sort of what gets called the anti-Semitism crisis on college campuses has been really eye-opening to me as well. And I think, you know, from my perspective, um, the thing I suppose I'm most concerned about is that it seems to me that we are um, at this moment repeating a lot of the same mistakes uh, of the sort of post-George Floyd moment where we, um, you know, cracked down on different kinds of expression where um, everything, uh, you know, from small gestures to asking people to show up to Zoom meetings on time all the way down to stuff you find at the bottom of your cereal box is understood as racism. I think we're going through a similar moment. And what's distressing about it is there is real um, anti-Semitism on college campuses. I think that has been plain. I think there is real, as I said, callous disregard to the loss of innocent Israeli life, which I found disturbing. Um, and at the same time, that's rapidly dovetailing into um, sort of a crackdown of any free speech that's critical of Israel. And what seems to me um, is being lost is threading that needle between real concern about um, some of the stuff that's going on in college campuses that does seem to be concerning um, and not tipping the line into a crackdown of what is politically legitimate speech that is critical of a war and a government. And that is, I think, intelligible in terms of a long line of campus anti-war activism, right? Um, and so threading that needle seems to me the challenge that is before us. And it's one that I feel like we're not meeting. And I think we are just you know, repeating the same mistakes we made in 2020, which is that we are throwing task forces at it. We are trying to censor people. We are, you know, open letter after committees. open letter. <laughs> yes, there's open letters, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've just been discouraged, I guess, would be the through line of everything discouraged. Yeah. And, and I, I just to add to everything Tyler said, I completely agree with all of that. Um, and, and I should add one of my former students was actually one of the victims of the October 7th attack. I'm sorry. Um, he, it, oh it was, man! Oh, yeah, he was he was murdered in a kibbutz. We happily oh. got um, his uh, one of a paper that he wrote for an independent study for me was published in Jacobin. It's been republished. Oh, I read that. That's great. Yeah, so that was a student. Chaim Katzman was and he was a good guy. So it hit home very. Oh good. man! Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. Like I took it. I knew him. You know, like we did the independent study thing. So that was that was Goodness. really terrible. Um, so it, it hit home very quickly. And just to um, agree with what Tyler said, but I also wanted to add two other. I thought, which which made this to me a thing worth talking about, which is one, the relative silence of people who have been inveighing against cancel culture. It's not true for everyone, but a lot of the people who have spent years, you know, criticizing wokeness and criticizing cancel culture, all of a sudden uh, don't have anything to say. And then two, for this particular podcast, what I found interesting was that you got the rise of this discourse of safetyism um, amongst the American Jewish community at large. And I, I'm maybe I'm the one to say this because I'm the uh, American Jew. Um, but but to me, it seemed like people were um, basically, I don't want to say play acting because emotions are genuine and you have to take those seriously, but people began to express that they were in more gen uh, danger than I think they were in any empirical sense, particularly if you were a, a white Ashkenazi Jew of extreme privilege, um, navigating basic elite spaces that effectively support Israel to the cows come home. Um, so you got the rise of this discourse of satiism, you got everything that Tyler said, and you got this um, basic uh, silence about people who have been talking about cancel culture for literal years. So this Daniel, to me can you, can you, can you um, I may be undercaffeinated, just expand a little bit. Who is this type who is very anti-woke, but then suddenly is, is silent? What's, what, what's the issue there? 
So the issue that I thought, you know, someone like the Weinstein brothers or people who are critical of woke culture on, on the right wing, you know, whether it's, I don't know, Joe Rogan or people like that have basically said nothing. I've given no amount of airtime to, as far as I'm aware, to the, um, you know, the, the Columbia University suspending the Students for Justice in Palestine or the Jewish Voices for Peace groups or the various agents at CAA getting fired for pro-Palestinian tweets. Um, and this, of course, is a long issue. Uh, do you guys remember Stephen Salida from about a yeah. decade ago who was fired from, who was a tenured professor who was moving from one R1 universe or an R2 to an R1. And he had made um, some tweets critical of Israel. I think they were actually quite, you know, intense tweets, but he was denied the new position and has left academia. So this is a uh, S-A-L-T-A, Stephen Salida, if people want to look into that case. So this is something that's been going a long time, but it's also something that I believe has not been the focus of people who have been, who've been criticizing cancel culture. Um, and t- please tell me if I'm wrong, but does not, this does not have, this does not seem to have been a, a thing that has been seized upon. So then the question is, why? What is unique about this particular circumstance? And then the answer, which might be boring, is we're all hypocrites and we all just align with our side. And that's that. If it's not within our political, a particular political arrangement, we don't really care. But this, Tyler and I were talking about this, and this is why we thought this would be a useful venue in which to uh, bring this up. Oh, uh, here. But, oh, so, Glenn, when you talked with Yasha Monk, did he talk about Palestine at all? I don't. I don't know. I listened to the conversation. He didn't. no. We talked about his book, The Identity Trap, and we talked uh, about CRT type stuff and and his kind of exegesis on how we got to where we are intellectually speaking on on uh, identity studies. Uh, the people we- in that crew, Barry. Okay, here's a great one. My my old college chum, Barry Weiss. <laughs> Which side is she on? You know, well, like uh, let me say something here, Danny, because. Uh, Zionism is a project of the Jewish people. It's an identitarian project in its essence. So the conflict is baked in. The conflict here is baked in very deep. If you are pro-Zionist and you are a critic of identity politics, you got a problem. And not only that... You you got a problem squaring those things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with either side of it. I'm just saying that there's a tension there that's, that's very deeply embedded. And, and of course, people have made this criticism of Barry before. This is how she got her whole thing started. I remember in college, she was part of the David Project or Project David, trying to basically, quote unquote, cancel Joseph Mossad. Um, so there, this has been a tension baked into this whole movement, which is why I've been very skeptical of it from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting that I, I totally agree with everything Danny said. I think it's worth noting that... Um, I think we can isolate sort of a core of people who have been banging on about free speech and woke stuff that have been pretty principled. I think most of the people that have signed the Harper's letter, or at least a lot of them, I think have been um, critical of, you know, the crackdowns of Columbia on free speech and elsewhere. Um, But I do think, you know, the Rogans and the sort of uh, less intellectually principled set, I think have been really um, silent, you know, in ways that are, are, uh, not perhaps not surprising, but nonetheless disappointing. Um, to Glenn's point about sort of the tension around identitarianism, I mean, that's one of the reasons this issue is so interesting to me. I mean, I often talk about um, 
jokes that there's a kind of black Overton window where there's like in a certain amount of acceptable black speech. And that goes from like the center left to the far left. And then anything else is like crazy heterodoxy, you know, and I but I think there's a similar Overton window um, that makes only certain kinds of Jewish political speech legible. And I think at the core of this um, crisis is you know, it's crazy to me that Jewish Voices for Peace was banned from Columbia. And that um, Columbia professor, Shai Devadi, I believe is his name, has been saying, you know, um, these, we should call the NYPD on them, blah, blah, blah. They support terrorism. And these are Jewish students, you know. And so to me, this is a kind of, you know, as a black guy who's often called an Uncle Tom, there is something at the core of this, which is about what kinds of um, Jewish politics are broadly acceptable, what kinds of Jewish politics get censored, what kinds of Jewish politics are blasted as being the sort of, uh, you know, Jewish equivalent of Uncle Tomming. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, really needs teased out in this in this conflict. And that I think there's not been enough pressure put on is the way in which certain kinds of, you know, speech is uh, recognizable as legitimate Jewish political voice and, you know, a whole other set um, which has plenty of adherence is really demonized and cast as being on the sort of self-hating spectrum of terrorism. So uh, that's a long rambling way of saying I, I agree with Glenn that the sort of paradoxes of identitarianism are at, at the core of a lot of this too. The hardest thing about all of this from what I'm seeing is, and it's actually, if you're going to be very clinical about it, it's a useful challenge to American political and intellectual culture, although it's also a tragic mess in so many ways, is that very few people would say that they don't understand that opinions will differ. Everybody is in favor, or everybody who counts is in favor of free speech in principle. But then what you run up against again and again, and this happened in 2020, and this is happening now, is a tacit sense. And it's the tacit senses that are hardest to get through. That all of that is very pretty until it comes to white people in power. And here what we're seeing is that for many Jewish people, the idea is that anti-Semitism makes Jewish people something other than the whites in power. The idea is if white, white people are in power, then all considerations of free speech and not censoring people and not canceling people have to be suspended. The idea is that it's an exception. I happen to be reading now, not because of all of this, Adam Schatz's new biography of Franz Fanon, and it's a great way to review his ideas. And that's what this is. I find myself thinking a lot of this stems from people who have read him and his comrades and thinking that in any case where people can be thought of as the colonies, the colonizer, then no more free speech. You rise up. Violence is OK, etc. And the thing is, that's whack. It doesn't work. And to say that to a black person in 2020 was hard to say that to either a Jewish person or a Palestinian person or a fan of either one of them, I am so sleepy that I don't have my words, is considered intolerable, but it has to be tolerable. That's the hard thing because very few people are brave enough to stand up to it. I find that that's, that's what we have to get past, the idea that when it comes to power relations, incivility and intolerance and even brutality are okay. Because a great many people drinking their coffee, civilized people, are really partisans of that idea. And very briefly, the idea that the kids are getting this from professors, I think, is blinkered. That's not where people get their information these days. My students get their information from TikTok, from any number of things that are online. They would feel this way whether or not they were taking a class from some leftist. It's the whole world that's giving them 
this, not just not just professors and campus culture. Let me ask you guys a question. <clears throat> I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. I'm trying to put myself in the position of one of my Jewish students. I just had a wonderful conversation with this young man yesterday. I won't identify him further, but he was just, we were just sharing because I had signed a letter here at Brown of faculty calling an open letter, <laughs> calling for a ceasefire and have been catching no end of flack because of that, you know? And uh, people want to know what side I'm on, you know? And they, they feel like, it, I mean, it's a pat retort, but here it is. Uh, ceasefire benefits Hamas. They started this. There was a ceasefire before October 7th, and they broke it when they attacked those people in southern Israel. It was a slaughter. Uh, you know, we got to finish the job. There's a, there, you know, we got to root out Hamas. It's necessary. You know, the Americans bombed Hiroshima. The, they firebombed Dresden. You, this is war. You got to do what you got to do. Kind of thing like that. And, and uh, what I'm trying to get at is that the people are viewing this conflict in existential terms. Uh, now, Hamas did, in fact, slaughter uh, viciously and brutally in, in a, a pogrom-like attack, you know, many, many hundreds. And hundreds have been taken captive. I mean, it was just a horrific thing. For you to get up and give a speech that says pro-Hamas, go Hamas, Israel is reaping what it has sown, to, to say that that's an act of violence is, it seems to me, not far off in, in terms of creating a fundamental condition of insecurity for people who feel like their lives are backly online. You call it safetyism, Danny. You, I'm, I'm just, I'm giving voice to this point of view. This is not necessarily my opinion, but I'm just saying, I can hear this kid that I was talking to yesterday saying this. So my, my response is that the framing is just wrong on almost every, every empirical sense. And at some point that, that has to matter, right? You, you have to be aware of the history of the 56 years of occupation um, you have to be aware that one side is a nuclear armed power with one of the most advanced militaries in the world. The other side is not. Um, there is not an excuse for any of the brutalities that Hamas committed, and particularly all of us um, in, in this sort of liberal context within which we operate. You know, we're, we're anti-violence in every particular situation. This is why you had this, do you condemn Hamas uh, 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 argument? But to compare um, any Palestinian organization to the Japanese Imperial Army or Nazi Germany is on its face absurd. Um, a pogrom is a thing. It's not just a word that indicates when Jews are killed. It referred to a majoritarian attack on a minoritarian population, mostly in the pale of settlement uh, in you know early 20th century Ukraine. And the Israel of 2023, I think this is the real issue when you're talking about Jews. Jews are socialized into a world where Israel is still the relatively state of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, when the 1973 Arab-Israeli war posed some sort of genuine existential threat to Israel. That hasn't been the case for literal decades. So at some point, you have to understand what is the actual empirical reality on the ground. It's a major force supported by the world empire with basically unlimited money and weapons, occupying a very weak population uh, in, in the, in, when you come to the West Bank, you have the settlement community and the occupation, the building of, for example, highways that Palestinians aren't able to drive on. And in Gaza, you have an over decade long blockade in an area where the population is, 50% of the population is under 17. So at some point, what I tell students, I mean, at some point, reality has to matter. 
right? At some point, you have to understand that it's not 1973 any longer. Just like you guys always say, it's not 1965 anymore. It's not 1900 any longer. You have to take reality into account. So the question as educators is how do you legitimize someone's felt, particularly a young politician who's going to Brown, I imagine was socialized in a particularly Jewish community, an American Jewish community that has consciously for 50 years equated Jewishness with support of Israel, which is not necessarily something that I would agree with, you know, philosophically, but that was done for a variety of historical reasons related to the post-Holocaust period, but whatever. But you have to ask people to look at reality. Otherwise, then what are we doing? Then any any emotional response to anything is legitimate, and that's, that's that. If it's not a pogrom, and I agree, that's a stretch of how to use it since 1973, and it's not a noble rebellion, I can't quite go for that either when you're talking about 1,200 people. Is there a word for it? Is part of the no, problem it's a that horrible... It's 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 um it was a horrible act of political violence that resulted in the murder of a, a number of uh, civilians and hostage taking that you know is is illegal under international law uh, it is immoral according to you know liberalism and all of our various thoughts but it is explicable is what I would say what are the conditions that led to this horrible event and if you're not focusing on that question then you're not focusing on what's interesting about it. Or what, what, what you would want to what, know what, to prevent well, it. Well, wait a minute, Danny, and I, and I want Tyler to get in. I see he wants to get in. I just want to say it's terrorism, man. I mean, this is, again, I'm just going to continue to channel this thing. You expect us to live with this on our border? You, you expect us to uh, accept this as the necessary consequence of uh, fulfilling the ambitions of, the, of uh, you know, Theodore Herzl and company? Uh, no nation would accept it. Why are you asking us to accept it? So let me respond very quickly. And, and what's wrong with using the word terrorism, by the way? I mean, this is simply you want to stay in touch with reality. Let's stay in touch with reality. Sure. I mean, I would point that person to the work of Lisa Stampnitsky, who has done an analysis of the category of terrorism. It is basically just a way to delegitimize particular forms of political violence. Now, you could either say that's fine because on the side, decide what you want to do in that instance is delegitimize that form of political violence. That's a political act. That's fine. But empirically, this is what the term does. And I leave it up to you and your God to determine whether you're going to use it. Um, now, the, <laughs> and the question that then is, is the answer um, that then you respond by basically annihilating a population. I mean, if is, is that is that the is that the response is the response basically. And then one very quick thing. It also it's it's a little bit of a, an absurd claim because Benjamin Netanyahu has been funding Hamas for years. You know, this is part of a particular political strategy by the Israeli political government to basically pacify Gaza and focus on settlement in the West Bank as the Israeli government has become more far right, et cetera. So, I mean, if, if you're so concerned with Hamas, maybe you shouldn't fund it. But whatever. Um, e even barring that, I think you have to look at the at the root causes of the actual issue. That's what I would say to that. Yeah, I, I would echo everything Danny said much more eloquently than I would have. The point I was going to raise also about Netanyahu allowing Hamas to be funded because he thought it was politically advantageous. Uh, and so, and you know, that it turned out it, it obviously was not. And so, I mean, I think um, to me, the response, I, I agree, Glenn, I, I would call it terrorism. I think that's the appropriate designation. One of my frustrations is the reticence of a certain, I think, comparatively small corner of the left, it should be said, um, to just outright say it was terrorism. But at the same time, I think there were material conditions and historical conditions at work 
which make it explicable. And explicable is not to say excusable, but rather explicable in the sense of an outgrowth of policy decisions and material circumstances that have prevailed for decades. You know, in the same way that 9-11 was explicable in terms of a broader American empire and, you know, the decisions we had made over the decades leading up to that, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean like all the lunatics on TikTok that have suddenly seemingly discovered Osama bin Laden's uh, letter, right, um, that that was an excusable act of terrorism. It just means that it needs it didn't drop out of the sky. We need to contextualize things in the sort of, you know, broader geopolitical ecosystem in which they occur. Um, I just want to pick up. Oh, sorry, John, go ahead. Very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. such a fine line. Explicable, <laughs> excusable. I would have to say what? isn't explicable. explicable. Like, sure. What, 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 Everybody's got a story. Yeah, so just, I, I, just a fine line. Just yeah, 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 yeah. No, I and mean, I, thing is, okay. no one's, yeah. it's so fringe to excuse Hamas. I mean, it is just not a mainstream position for most people in the United States to agree with the, the killing of civilians. To me, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a chimera to even argue that this is like a real position worth arguing with, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it is really fringe. Um, and I think, you know, I think to pick up on something you said earlier, John, I think there's a question about, um, I think the discussion would be different if Hamas had attacked an Israeli military installation. That is not what happened, right? And I think the question of um, civilian violence is at the crux of the issue, right? And why it is so obviously egregious. I mean, and I agree, Jamie's totally right that this is a kind of fringe sensibility, but I also think it's worth noting that um, there are a lot of people who even are disputing the extent to, you know, the crimes of October 7th. And I don't even just mean the sort of debate over whether or not babies were beheaded, but, you know, the question of rape and, you know, a lot of uh, really true horrors that we have, I think, pretty good um, anecdotal and visual evidence to suggest took place. There is this right. reticence to sort of even admit any of it happened. And I think that's all, you know, uh, disturbing. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I think I tend to agree with Danny that we should contextualize what happened, which is resolutely not to say excuse, but, you know, Netanyahu was funding, allowing Moss to be funded. I think, um, you know, that's not a trivial detail in all this. Uh, and just as a last point, uh, Glenn, you mentioned the sort of safety is a question. And, you know, one of the reasons I think this has been so conflictory on college campuses is that I think a certain kind of Jewish student who now does feel insecure and unsafe, and whether that's reasonable or not, let's set that aside. I know Danny might not think so. I know, Colette, maybe you do. But setting aside whether or not that's reasonable, these students for the last half decade have been told that your experience of feeling insecure is proof that you are, that we need to believe anyone who says they've encountered racism, right? That feeling like you've encountered racism is proof that a racism happened, right? And so, you know, I think it's totally understandable why Jewish students now, with a particular politics, are saying, why don't you believe me? I'm saying I feel insecure, and yet, you know, um, it doesn't seem to be garnering the same outpouring of support, the same institutional response that happens when a Black student says, I experienced racism and feel insecure. So I think at the crux of this is, you know, students are just applying the standards that have been applied to other groups for a decade. And I think those standards are bad, and I don't think the fact of feeling racism is self-legitimating and proves that racism happened. But at the same time, I have um, both empathy for and 
you know, I would just insist that we should understand these students' responses, whether we think they're reasonable or not, or whether we think fear is overblown or not, as perfectly consonant and just you know, an application of principles that have been at work for a decade. And I think we should not be blaming the students um, is one thing I feel very deeply. I think John hit the nail on the head. There is TikTok. I think there's stuff going on in the faculty. I think there's stuff going on in the diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. But this is, if you don't like the student attitudes, right, we're supposed to be educating them. And this is a series of institutional failures from universities, but also from legislators who have not done the work of regulating things like TikTok and social media and everything else, right? And so I guess I just, I have a lot of sympathy for where students are coming from in the sense of, I don't think their response has often been bad, but I think... Um, they were pr- the pump was primed in a certain way through actions that had nothing to do with them, you know. And I think I would add to that that they a generation of Jewish students are going to be imprinted by the fact that they feel persecuted, and they can point to episodes of stark resistance, physical violence, near physical violence, naked slurs hollered at them by people in real time. All of that on campuses is becoming regular. And there's a whole contingent of supposedly educated people telling them to shut up. Whereas, let's face it, racism on college campuses exists. But frankly, I can confidently say essentially no black student for 50 years has encountered anything that stark. You have to work to find the quote unquote microaggressions, et cetera. And yet anytime a black person claims, student claims racism, then we have to pretend that college campuses are hotbeds of, of bigotry. That's not fair. And Jewish students are watching this and they're disgusted. And I would have to say, I would, that's explicable. I understand they're disgusted about that. But they're getting the support of the administration. I mean, every who are, administration. Who are getting that support? Jewish students. I mean, it's SJP and SVP that is being thrown off campus. There, There's um, all these silencing. Of so which Jewish, which Jewish students? Because here at Brown, 50 Jewish students right, sat in at the administration yeah. building and were arrested and carted away by the gendarme for uh, occupying, and they oh, were no. demanding a ceasefire. That's why they were there. Right. And this so is which the Jewish thing, students? This is the big thing in the American Jewish community. If you're under 40, you're basically critical of Israel. And if you're over 40, you're not. So this is a, this is another thing. I mean, the, the trends are very queer, uh, clear. This is why APEC and the ADL are really pushing Christian Zionism. I mean, basically, both Israel and the American Jewish institutions recognize that the next generation of Jews, who are basically third or fourth generation Jews at this point, who have become part of the elite, not totally, but to a large degree, and accept, you know, liberal values and don't like seeing a state oppress a population that are not going to be as pro Israel, even though I think in the long term it's not pro-Israel, but that's a different conversation, quote unquote, what they define as pro-Israel. And so they're moving toward Christian Zionism. Um, so this is another, you know. But, but wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm one of these Jewish students and like Tyler was just referring to, I see people saying, well, they, the Hamas really didn't do what you all said they did. And, and start splitting hairs with me. There were no beheaded babies. You know, nobody was actually set on fire. Where's your proof that whatever? And you've got all of this, as he, Tyler, uh, remarked, uh, uh, evidence, circumstantial, and some of it more than circumstantial, that a horrific thing happened there. What am I to think about the person who's saying to me, with their arms folded across their chest, how many people really died? How many people really died? I think they're Jew haters is what I think. I think they think the killing of those people and there's uh, uh, somehow, uh, I mean, flip the script. Is so, suppose somebody said to you, not that many people died during slavery. 
So this gets, you know, so so why isn't a, a, a Jewish student sympathetic to Israel entitled to feel, you know, this is at the tail end of boycott, divest and sanction. I mean, this this fight about the moral status of uh, the state of Israel has been going on for a long time. So Jewish students friendly to Israel are already feeling embattled. And now something horrific like this happens and, the, and they get the Norman Finkelstein treatment from uh, people that, you know, you're, you're, you're overplaying your hand, you Zionist. So why shouldn't they, why shouldn't they feel threatened? I mean, it probably, it probably doesn't feel great, but in, in the moment, but you also, you know, if, if you have uh, racism against you, does it totally change your existential view of life, your entire Weltanschauung? Again, that's between everyone um, and their God. I mean, this is the issue is that anti-Zionism is that anti-Semitism. The state of Israel for 50 years has said, yes, it is. American Jewish institutions have said, Yes, it is. I would say it's a bit more complicated than that in the year 2023. Now, the fact that a Jewish student totally identifies with Israel due to various processes of socialization, I would understand it probably feels pretty terrible for people to deny what I consider to be an obvious truth, that there was atrocities committed against civilians and there was various war crimes committed by a Palestinian political group against civilians. To me, that seems undeniable, but it raises more interesting questions than how you feel in the moment, young person, as far as I'm concerned. Just like I wouldn't want to accept someone, you know, I feel okay. Like this, is this what college, is college just a never ending series of emotional reactions to things? Or are we supposed to get at a deeper, deeper thing? And the fact is, no, we're actually not because it's just for consumers and they're all going into debt now. So who gives a shit? But in an ideal world, we would actually be educated them. <laughs> no, I mean, this is really where I come down. I, I totally agree with Danny. I mean, I think, like I said, I think if I were a pro-Israel Jewish student that had watched the last 10 years and particularly watched the unfolding since 2020 and seen that the playbook is that if you say you've experienced racism, it's racism. And if you say you've experienced discomfort, then it's, you know, whatever. Um, I would feel like my institutions have been slow to react. And yeah, Columbia has cracked down, but that took donor pressure. And I think but it the took cracking, a while, right? Yeah, and yeah. the cracking down is ridiculous and a gross violation of free speech. So I'm not supporting it, right? But I'm saying if you're in this particular mindset, right, you see that it took a while for this stuff to happen. And one of the things that I think is a um, a sort of uh, piece of evidence that sort of tells the story is that most of these elite institutions are not rolling out their diversity, equity, and inclusion offices. They're starting parallel anti-Semitism task forces and, and committees and whatever, which goes, to show, yeah, which goes to show that the, something about the DEI offices in that particular ideological constellation was inadequate to confronting anti-Semitism, right? Like, if, if these institutions were prepared and were about equity and inclusion and whatever, and were prepared to tackle these thorny questions, right, then there would have been a DEI response and there was not. And they've had to create parallel institutions and they're not at all reckoning with the tension between the sort of diversity, equity and inclusion mantras of settler colonialism and anti-racism and whatever else and sort of the pillaring of whiteness. And then, you know, what is going on on campus, right? They're just creating parallel institutions that are dealing with these problems separately and not reconciling any of the tension. But to Danny's point, I mean, colleges have become luxury resorts with bad hotel rooms for students to do drugs and have sex in and then go become consultants. Uh, but in, in a perfect world where that was not the case, right, um, I think we would be trying to educate them about these difficult conversations. I mean, you know, something like from the river to the sea, which the um, Harvard president, you know, condemned as a statement, right? Um, 
It's a statement with a long and complex history and, and protest that for the vast majority of people using it does not mean, exi- you know, exiling Jews from the state of Israel, right? Uh, and for the vast majority of people, it is not anti-Semitic. At the same time, I understand if you are not somebody steeped in pro-Palestine protest culture, that those nuances might be lost to you. And I can understand how, you know, as a lay observer, that might sound. I mean, to me, if I didn't know more about the issue, it might sound like the South will rise again, right? Which is something that where I might be like, well, that doesn't sound great. And someone might be like, oh, no, no, it's about returning to the, you know, glory that was lost before Reconstruction or whatever, and economic prosperity, and cultural health in the South or whatever, right? And maybe there's a nuanced conversation to have, but, you know, from where I sit, my hackles would get up. But the solution to that is not to start cracking down on speech. The solution is to, as an institution, encourage rational discussion, fact-finding, teach-ins, um, and debate about the issue. And that's precisely what isn't happening. We're just condemning slogans. We're banning Jewish voices for peace. I mean, maybe Danny or, or Glenn or John, you can correct me, but I haven't seen any institutions that have actually tried to designate space and time to have like an intellectual discussion and debate about either the conflict or about some of these these, you know, phrases that are causing anger. And they can't because of the donors, because this is what this is ultimately all about. You could just look at every college and then look at the donors. Like like John said, uh, this is really the big issue here, which is why they don't want spaces like that. That that is that is the thing that everyone's afraid to say, but it's about losing donations in a well, university. I'm not going to dispute that, Danny, I, but I want to make an observation because I see an interesting connect here. I mean, who is the constituency? So, from the university's development office, the constituency is people who are going to give money to the university. Those are your donors. From the DEI's office, the constituency is peoples of color uh, who are fighting against oppression. The Palestinians are a part of that coalition in a way that the quote unquote Jews are not. So, of course, you don't give the DEI office a portfolio of managing the anti-Semitism problem because the constituencies are in conflict. Likewise, you, <laughs> you, you can't expect the president of the university or the chief fundraising uh, apparatus to come out four square for Palestinian justice when, you know, the constituency that they're serving is li- not likely to be much uh, 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 pleased with, with that kind of uh, presentation. So... It's a complicated terrain with all kinds of interlocking and cross-cutting interest, it it seems to me. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, Just want to see if this floats. If Rashida Tlaib can do the thing about the the ocean, what is it again? River River to the the sea. sea. Palestine will be free. Folks, I'm off time. Sorry. River, River to the sea. If she feels that she can say that, might the solution be, since we're going to stop all of this this condemnation and, frankly, pretending we don't understand the nuances of language, might it be that she's allowed to say that in a metaphorical kind of way and not be read as supporting terrorism? But it means that we have to stop getting our knickers in a twist when Sarah Palin says lock and load or when Donald Trump <laughs> says we'll be wild, you know, or to allow Bubba to, of course, I'm not helping by calling him that, for him to say the South will rise again and stop pretending that he wants slavery to come back. Allow him to have a certain feeling about the South and needing to rise in some way. Is there room for that? Because frankly, I bristle to hear that that Rashida Tlaib phrase used. I think it's disgusting to even even touch it. But I think I know what she thought she meant. But then again, we're going to have to listen to people we don't like and give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt too, right? Just throwing that out there. 
Yeah. I, I think, not, I, excuse me, Dan, just let me quickly. I think, because it's a linguistic point. You, me, you utter a word that is heard by someone else. They then make an inference about what you meant and when you're coming from when you utter that word. And the and point is, there's some degree of ambivalence there. They could mean more than one different kind of thing. The guy who says the South will rise again could simply mean he thinks that the South will be a better, more prosperous, or whatever. He not, it doesn't necessarily mean he wants to go back to slavery. And someone who says river to the sea might mean one state, one vote, one person, one vote, one state in the area that is historic Palestine. And that doesn't mean I, I want to kill all the Jews or push them into the sea. It just means I have a particular political position. So, you know, it's an interpretation problem and in the, the kind of the least generous interpretation is he's a racist who says the South will rise again, or he's a, he's a Jew-hating anti-Semite who says from the river to the sea, but it's not the only feasible interpretation. Thanks, Danny. Just, just very quickly, and then I'll let Tyler talk. Um, no, no, so no. How about it? The, the way that I, I hear you is basically like, who is the we? Because as you know, your linguist and language is social. So you're basically talking about the contours of like super liberal culture. Right. And expanding the contours of like hyper elite liberal culture to include Baba and to include Rashida Tlaib. And I, I, to me, I think that's that's great. I mean, you, one should do that. But it's, it's essentially that is the hegemonic culture in American elite life. And what I think is looking at what is accepted and what's not accepted reveals the blind spots and tensions within that culture itself. Like, why is a particular DEIification Ibram Kendi embraced, but Rashida Tlaib and Bubba are not. To me, the question says a lot about modern liberalism and about how modern liberalism functions in 2023 as it tries to retain its waning hegemony in the wake of Donald Trump and the fact that basically it's a gerontocratic philosophy at this point. Can you unpack it just briefly, briefly? What does it say about modern liberalism and how is that connected up to uh, gerontocracy? Well, I think it's basically people who abide by the, the project of American empire, both domestically and internationally, that the United States should have 750 bases abroad, that the United States should fund Israel, that the United States should fund Ukraine. But at the same time, you embrace this liberal melting pot discourse of the late Cold War about like where the United States is where people come and the, the, it's not a salad bowl, it's a melting pot and we all Emerge. So that entire philosophy to me has come under severe criticism in the last 30 years for a variety of reasons, mainly income and wealth inequality and the failures of the American empire. So now there's fighting a rear guard, effectively culture war action to try to distract from the material degradation of the project itself. Why isn't gerontocratic? Because people who were raised in that philosophy are the ones who continue to govern us because baby boomers are not dying due to various medical. We're not. We're not. (laughs) Uh, And they're not only not dying, they're not giving up their money and they're not letting other people run for office. So so this is the statistic that I always use. In the early 1970s, the head of the Rand Corporation was 32 years old. Would that ever happen in 2023? No. So a lot of this is just a gerontocratic thing that's going to change people literally change and die and other people with different experiences come into office. So that to me is what a lot of this reveals. That's interesting. That's really interesting, Danny. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yeah, they just, no one has died fast enough. Uh, There's a lot more political problems. You have a disconnect between the ruling elite and everyone under them in terms of money and ideology. So that's where a lot of this culture war stuff comes up. 
Yeah, no, and I think the the Rand 32-year-old uh, CEO's point is, I mean, that's a really incredible data point that is unfathomable. Uh, Glenn, I, I think you like raised a really good point that shouldn't be lost about um, the sort of tension between, um, you know, the do- courting of donors and then the DEI offices. And I think that's a really constitutive tension that has not at all been unpacked and that universities thought they could sidestep, right? Like, I think elite universities thought they could usher in the front door social justice projects, uh, a new kind of university as activist space model um, that, you know, the arc of the universe bends toward justice. And that is the Ivy League, which does the bending. Right. And that in the back door, they could pull in, uh, you know, rich elites and donors who have a fundamentally more conservative outlook on the world um, in that this would never become a problem. Right. Um, And of course, that wasn't sustainable. Right. It was inevitable that a fundamentally more conservative donor class um, would come into tension with the sort of social justice mission of the university. Right. And I think the fact that they thought they could um, get away with this tension just underscores how little they believe the actual social justice mission. Right. Like this was the neoliberal feel good multicultural wallpaper that is on top of these institutions. Right. That is the pretty face for the outside. And then all the the money and the dragon's horde and that they're sitting on top of. Like, there's no tension between those two. And then it emerges that, of course, there is. And they're shocked to find that some of their students and some of the faculty and some of their administrators believe the things they've been saying. And that's, like, at the core of all of this. It's like, oh, some of these people actually believe the things they said, right? And now it's causing this huge kerfluffle. Um, And I think until we reckon with the incompatibility of a donor-driven financial model, with the social justice <laughs> university, we're, we're, nothing's going to change, right? And I mean, and two, I think it's important to flag that there's an increasing turn. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the percentage of restricted donations has gone through the roof over the last two decades, right? And that's one of the modes of sort of donor activism that we're seeing. I think it's important to flag too, right, that this is not the first issue where donors are exerting pressure. I mean, there have been previous issues around sort of wokeness and trans issues and, and other things where donors are putting this to universities. Um, you can find articles going back to at least 2016 that talk about, you know, donor activism, backlash against wokeness. So this isn't is it new in any way. Um, but I really do think it's uniquely calibrated to pull apart sort of flimsy social justice mission from the sort of feasibility of the financial model. Right. Um, and that's I mean, this is the but- fallout. Tyler, I want to ask you, actually, because you're very good at um, depicting the ridiculousness of, of junctures like that. I mean, anybody could have seen this coming four and five years ago. And these are these are bright people running these institutions. And you're talking about that person in a blue suit, whether they're a woman or a man's job is to have lunch and attend events and raise money. God knows why anybody takes those jobs, but that's what they do. Now, the thing is, obviously, there was this incommensurability between this DEI onslaught and the sorts of views that donors with really big money tend to have. What would you have done? Like, I agree with you, but what would the other pathway have been? I mean, I don't think the universities had to embrace a straightforwardly social justice mission. Like, that, that was a choice they made after 2020 to basically morally launder an increasingly predatory financial model as they hiked tuition through the roof, as they started peddling luxury <laughs> resort style experiences at colleges and universities, as they became a engine of endless debt for students, right? And 
increasingly, you know, that looks bad. And how do we solve that problem? Well, we can put forward this lie that we are, we are engines of social justice as we continue to pump out a endless stream of consultants. I've written about well, couldn't this. Couldn't it be copycat? Like once school A does it, then the other 16 have to do it because then somebody's going to say, why did you do it? Yeah, John, no, I mean, I there's a copycat thing. I think let's expand it just slightly. This is just elite liberalism dealing with itself. Like to relate to what I said earlier, this is the problem with modern liberalism. It, it, it is a, a fundamental ideology that has been in power so long, it is not supple like it used to be. It, it is it is being torn apart by its various tensions. And this is just the, the space where it's like really, really um, clear because you have a bunch of young people together who are basically all of the same class arguing about this open because they don't have to go to jobs yet. They don't have to go to the McKinsey and Bain or Raytheon or any of these other institutions that they're all going to anyway. So colonize Raytheon. It's, it's, this is really a tension about liberalism itself. This, this is, this is the, the story of the age to me as an intellectual. Well, well, Danny, Danny, okay. I need your help, man, because liberalism is the best thing going compared to what? Liberalism may be full of contradictions and it may be foundering, but Damn it, compared to what? The rest is the dark ages. Well, this and, is, Fukuyama was right, man. Like, I wrote a big piece about Fukuyama for the nation. He was right. When he said the end of history, he meant that there would be no ideological challenges to liberalism. And he is absolutely right. There have been no ideological challenges to liberalism. In fact, everyone's now capitalist, from China to Russia to the United States. And now, it's a good thing, too. I don't, well, in the manifesto, <laughs> Marx said we would either get communism or be in the mutual ruin of the contending classes. I think we might be in the mutual ruin of the contending classes, given that we've created a world in which political legitimacy rests on consumption, and consumption, it turns out, is destroying the planet. So that's okay. okay. I, I got to do this. I got to do this as a devil advocate. I got to do this. I'm sorry. This is not my real view necessarily, but here it is. The grand uh, moment. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, they they have the colonial metaphor, and you know, and and people reject it because Israel is not a colonial, you know, European, whatever. Because the Jews, it's there, it's an indigenous, and, and whatever, whatever. But here's the deal: here's the deal: Western civilization versus the Dark Ages. Okay, and if Israel goes down, and if they can't, I almost said we can't uh, deal with this uh, issue, this kind of issue. Uh, and uh, sustain the, the project of creating the state of Israel, uh, that's a harbinger of the end of the West. That, that's, that's, that means that, you know, the future belongs to China. That, that means Taiwan is next. I mean, uh, this is not small potatoes. This is not identity politics. This is actually world history playing itself out in the 21st century. And, and I do want to know whose side you're on. Don't we want enlightenment, Western civilization? Uh, yes, capitalism, not with warts and all, I mean, not unregulated cowboy capitalism. Don't we want prosperity? Don't we want an end to famine? Don't we want women's rights? Don't we want gay people to be able to walk straight down the street, et cetera, et cetera? Don't we think the market is basically the way resources should be allocated, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, so Israel can't fail. Israel's failure is, is, the, end of the, is the beginning of the end for, for the Western project. Uh, if anything, it wouldn't be the dark ages. It would be at, at 
the dialectic of enlightenment. I mean, political Islam is absolutely emergent from modern ideology. I mean, anyone who studies this shows how it's a very modern construction and emerges from the failure of basically secular nationalism in a post-colonial context. I mean, that's why political Islam takes off in the 1970s when it does. That's why everyone famously, they're all engineers, right? Because they're all educated and they all encounter the West. So it's not the dark ages. If you could do the Adorno-Horkheimer dialectic of enlightenment thing. So I, I mean, so that, that I would reject that civilizational language from the beginning. Um, in, in terms of like um, China, I mean, I just think, again, empirically, what China has shown is that it doesn't want U.S. forces within its first island chain. It wants to be dominant in East Asia. I don't think China has the American millenarian Protestant vision that it could dominate the world that that basically took off in the 1940s with people like John Foster Dulles and Dean Acheson who are like, oh, we'll just dominate the world forever, which is a profoundly naive and ridiculous way to understand things. So I don't think China is going to challenge the United States in the Western Hemisphere. I think it wants to dominate East Asia. And frankly, as I wrote in Harper's last year, it's going to. It's a lot closer to East Asia. It's in it. And it's gigantic. So it is an American fantasy to think that we are going to be able to dominate it like it's 1950. So then there's the material reality to that. And then the question about capitalism and, and, and all of that, I mean, again, this is what no one, all the theorists of capitalism from Adam Smith to Milton Friedman, to Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, they were talking about a consumer focused capitalism that has empirically shown to destroy the planet. That is not a question. Climate change is real. We are blowing past everyone of the markers about when human society will not be affected. So the question is, are we going to be able to rest our political legitimacy like China, the United States, and India, and basically every great power is doing on consuming from now until the cows come home? Are Americans going to be able to consume whatever, 20% of the world's energy from now until forever? No, we can't. These are the material sources of the crisis of liberalism that gets informed in our political discourse because it's all run by liberal elites as nonsense culture war stuff. Small point, Danny. China's a lot bigger than the U.S. and they're growing. In the long run, the climate issue is on, on the Asia and South Asia and East Asia. But they're trying to do the Western model of consumption. Right. That yeah. is what the political legitimacy since Deng Xiaoping has rested on is we're going to be like the, and really since the kitchen debates in the 50s with the Soviet Union is that we're going to provide you with consumer consumer goods. It turns out, though, that destroys the planet. So what are you going to do with that? So I would just say that I endorse everything that Danny said as a uh, crunchy, soft Marxist environmental studies professor. So Danny and I are in the same. <laughs> but I do want to address the question about the sort of from a cultural perspective, the question of the West, because I think it's a really important one, you know, and I think um, I would softly like my soft Marxism defend the idea of the West. I think it's um, I think Western culture uh, has a lot going for it. Um, and I think um, precisely some of the problems we're encountering right now are about the erosion of those very values. Right. And I think the thing I would point out historically is that the alliance between sort of Western traditionalism and capitalism is a profoundly recent alliance that only emerges in the 1950s as an effort in the sort of post-war moment to cobble together evangelical Christians, uh, exiles from the Soviet Union who came over and were politically homeless, uh, and then the sort of nascent 
capitalist Hayekian class, right? And it made no sense to cobble those groups together. They don't have much in common, but it was a brilliant strategical move to seize power and form what is now the modern Republican Party. But before the 1950s, a lot of conservatives were deeply skeptical of capitalism. They were deeply skeptical of capitalism for really good reasons, which was that they understood that capitalism melts everything solid into air, liquidates all of the values and ties that bind people together in community, and that capitalism, at unfettered capitalism, is at fundamental odds with community values in a traditionalist cultural project, right? Um, and so I think if you want to defend the West in a certain sense, you need to understand the erosion that's taking place as part of this unholy, ill-thought-out alliance uh, that is no less, uh, you know, makes no more rational sense than the alliance between the sort of finance bros that run the universities and the that the alliance on conservatives between free market Hayekian capitalism on the one hand and traditionalist Western values on the other hand. Those two things don't go together. And now we're seeing them come apart, right? And so I would defend the West, Glenn. I often joke that the idea of the West is the last dangerous idea left in America, right? Because now social justice and all of the, uh, you know, anti-racism and uh, anti-war and whatever, and that's, you know, very much in the mainstream. But I think the defense of the West is one of the last ideas you could count, encounter on a college campus that might seem a little bit dangerous, right? And so I would defend it. Uh, but I totally am on board with everything Danny is saying, both about the sort of geopolitical landscape, the reality of climate change, and the sort of brutality of, of the neoliberal market system we have. And I would highlight that none of those are conservative projects. Wow. You guys, uh, there is. we have dissected the uh, sort of political economy of the university. We have dealt with the, the global uh, political situation. We've uh, put on the table the future of liberalism and uh, the uh, planet's uh, imminent uh, demise. Uh, and we've only spent an hour doing it. So <laughs> uh, I think uh, we're at a natural stopping point here. And I got another appointment, I should say. And John is flagging, as he told us he would be, because he's, you know, no, sleep I'm, I'm deprived. Not, I'm not flagging. And I actually, I would happily go on for another 15 or, or 30 minutes in response to what what both both of our, our colleagues have said. But I have a thing because I'm at a thing. So, yeah. He has a thing. He's at a thing. Uh, that's Tyler Austin Harper Bates College. That's Daniel Besner, University of Washington, and my conversation partner, John McWhorter. Uh, we've stuck our necks out onto the chopping block. So watch the comments. Thanks for tuning in to The Glenn Show, everybody. Uh, see you next week.